Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. If you would like to hear episodes of this show you may have missed, please go to RadioPetLady.com and visit the podcast library. You can also listen to all the Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with pet experts, including Cat Chat, The Pet Cancer Vet, Good Dogs, The Expert Vet, Exotic Pets, Holistic Vets, Pet Food Advisors, Humane Talk, and Authors on Animals. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content, and is brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Precious Cat Litter, and Waruva, a privately owned pet food company named after the owner's rescued cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Their brands are Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen in Pouches, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brand, created for finicky felines and fussy little dogs. All their cans and pouches are made in a human food facility, which means that every ingredient is good enough for people to eat, if your kitty will share. I am here with my friend Mary Peng from the International Center for Veterinary Services, my co-host on our new show, Tales from China, on the Radio Pet Lady Network, which I'm hoping many of you will start to dip into and share with me the the adventure of learning about pets in China, people and animals in China, old attitudes, new attitudes, changing attitudes. And today we're going to talk about something that's more of a topical news item. Mary Peng, it's wonderful that you're willing to get up at crazy hours of the day and night to reach out to all the pet-loving people in America. Thank you for that. Hi, Tracy. I am so happy to be uh, on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I am happy to do so at any hour of the day. Always a pleasure. Well, you, you, you have been a tireless advocate for support and education and information for the people and the authorities inside China that want to have dogs and cats and guinea pigs and rabbits, or maybe some of them don't want them to have them. So you were on this show on Dog Talk, you know, not that long ago, and we talked the sort of overview, and it was about the dog meat trade and how that represented just a small, old-fashioned slice of Chinese thinking and Chinese life. And we also touched, I think, or maybe it was in Tales from China, on a number of years ago, five, six, I've lost track of the number, in which there was a clubbing and a killing of many dogs in front of their owners around a rabies scare. And now there's been another huge purge of dogs. I believe 5,000 of them have been killed. But, you know, we only get snippets of this in America, and it's usually quite negative towards China and Chinese attitudes to pets. So I'd love you to catch us up on what has happened recently and what you guys think about it, what you're doing about it, how we can be helpful. And we just need to be knowledgeable, not ignorant and negative. Absolutely. This is something that is so important. So thank you so much again for giving us the opportunity to speak about these issues. We do read fairly uh, fairly regularly about dog coals, and these are always related to rabies outbreaks. You know, for example, uh, an outbreak of five, uh, five confirmed rabies fatalities 
And this happened in southern China and in a province, uh, Yunnan province. Okay. So what happens is the first knee-jerk response is that we try and trace the source of the rabies infection, which is in more than 95% of cases uh, traced back to dogs. So then the sort of logical conclusion is that we've got to go and round up all the dogs and we've got to, you know, take care of these dogs. In many cases, they are destroyed. So this is, unfortunately, uh, an isolated uh, incident, or, or rather, fortunately, it's an isolated incident. This does not happen nationally throughout the nation, right? It's unfortunate that it does occur from time to time, but when we read about it, even in the local newspapers or online in China, uh, I think most pet owners are horrified, Right, most Chinese pet owners really find it very, uh, very extreme to do these things. The big challenge is that we have so many areas that are that are fairly rural, where transportation, logistics, and just basic basic organization infrastructure is yes. not very good. So it's extremely hard to get, you know, uh, uh, volunteers or public officials or healthcare officials to go out to many of these remote areas, lesser developed areas, with vaccines that have to be stored properly and refrigerated. Right. And, and, you know, you need to have all the medical supplies and you need to have healthcare professionals that know how to administer and can, can handle and restrain dogs. So if you look at the task that lies ahead, you know, to be able to implement a rabies vaccination drive, it can be very difficult. Now, let and me interrupt and ask you, do you have the same issues with vaccinating humans against various communicable diseases? Most, I mean, some could even be fatal diseases. Is there that same challenge in getting health care to humans in rural areas, or has that, in the growth of China, has that been overcome? I wouldn't say it's been overcome, but it has been addressed, and it continues to be addressed. You know, childhood vaccinations are a priority for for uh, the Ministry of Health and for the for the government of uh, of China. So this is something that we do know that they're placing tremendous um, emphasis on to get vaccinations to humans. But these are more related to the you know the essential childhood vaccines. Um, Rabies vaccinations for humans are, are, again, you know, not always widely available. And you do have to travel sometimes to go a little distance to find, you know, a hospital or clinic uh, to get rabies vaccination. Oh, I didn't actually, I didn't, I'm I'm sorry, Mary, I didn't actually mean a rabies vaccination because even in the U.S., rabies vaccinations are very hard to come by and people are only sort of, if you will, vaccinated after the fact they're given the injections after somebody has had contact in in the United States, mostly with wild animals because they're the the, the carriers of rabies. But I just meant whether the whole idea of getting vaccines uh, to rural areas for all the reasons that you said, even for childhood diseases, is that even a challenge? But of course, there's not really a parallel because children, well, children can die of those childhood diseases or, or, you know, be uh, disabled from them or by them. But in the, t- in the case of rabies, dogs with rabies, if they bite anybody, even if their saliva comes into contact with any open skin, people will die from it. And that's something in America and in Great Britain and other countries 
where either dogs have been kept out like Great Britain or countries like America where rabies vaccination has been so successful uh, with dogs and cats, we aren't really familiar with it. So if we think about the Hunan province and we think that five people, and probably many of them are children because children are the most likely to be bitten by dogs, at least in the U.S., died, it, it, although killing 5,000 dogs seems like a ridiculous and horrific and, if you will, over-the-top reaction, it's not really because five human deaths, if that were to happen in America, the Centers for Disease Control would round up dogs as well. But what, what we need to have a visual of is how do those dogs in rural areas in China or even in urban areas, do they, are they owned dogs? Do they always live in someone's apartment or house? Or do many of them roam as strays like in countries like Mexico or India? Where do the dogs live that might have the rabies? Okay, so the the dogs are really just our our community dogs. Most of them in these village type environments, um, the dogs are really called uh, loosely owned village dogs. Let's nice. put it this way. Nice. You know what what happens is that you'll you'll have a little village, and basically, you know, all the dogs are free to wander around during you know during the daytime. Yes. Uh, they they walk around. They'll go from house to house. But if you ask the villagers, oh, this dog. Does it belong to someone? They will tell you, oh, yeah, that belongs to the Zhang family. That belongs to the Li family. That I belongs see. to the, you know, so there's usually some connection to a family with, uh, with most of the dogs. You know, very rarely where you have like a true stray where nobody right. knows this animal. It wanders right. into the village. So most of these dogs are loosely owned. But also because there's such, you know, there's no neuter or spaying right. in a lot of these rural right. villages. So there's lots of puppies, right? Right. And then when the puppies are born and then they, they're they're of age and they start running around and then it sort of becomes uh, you know, anybody that wants them can then lay claim. Right. And then maybe sometimes people don't lay claim to all the dogs or they do wander off to other parts of the village or other villages and then they do become a true stray. So this is what really happens and, you know, the vaccination awareness for rabies especially, is very low. You know, there's a very low understanding of right. what is rabies, how it's transmitted, how you can get it, and most importantly, how you can prevent rabies. I don't think most of the people that we read about that died in China didn't do anything after they were exposed meaning that they were usually bitten by right, an animal right. uh, or, or, you know, they may have come in contact and, you know, was, were licked on their, on their wounds or cuts or mucous right, membranes. Right. And they didn't do anything. They didn't seek medical care. They didn't know that they should seek medical care. So, you know, the, the risk awareness is very low. And that is one of the main contributors to why we have such high death rates of rabies in China. You know, it's about 2,000 to 3,000 people a year dying in China from rabies, and 95% of the exposures are traced back to dogs. Now, let me ask you, do these dogs look like the dogs that we Americans or, or British people have seen in mostly in a movie or on television? Does the dog froth at the mouth and act like a mad, crazy dog, or do they seem perfectly normal and fine and just happen to come over and bite you? And, and this is something that we, we communicate all the time and we teach about, you know, what you're describing with the foaming of the mouth and like the mad barking, yes, yes. fly bite, this, that furious form of rabies, those symptoms are really not something that we see. I and see. I've spoken with many, many, you know, animal care and control officials here in China. 
a lot of times rabies is completely asymptomatic. You I'll would be not darned. be able to tell. Yeah, wow. and, and this is probably true in the in the greater majority of cases. The animal doesn't present with these traditional symptoms. Right. You know, with like foaming of the mouth and they're going crazy. They may have some neurological, you know, twitching. They they just may seem tired, uh, lethargic, you know. But there's really no clear indicator. Um, that they have rabies. And, so, this, and, so it's a pretty serious health problem. I mean, if these dogs, if you can't even say to people, God, if you see a dog acting like that, run inside, call the authorities, or, you know, jump in a car or something and close the door. If, if in fact, any dog acting any sort of a way could potentially be a rabies carrier, that in itself is pretty frightening. Because then why wouldn't and why shouldn't everybody be very fearful? I'm, I'm just asking, I would be, for myself, my children, my friends, if any dog in loosely owned society, which is how dogs are owned, could potentially be a carrier, that's a huge health threat. That it's, that's correct, especially in a country where rabies is not well controlled, where that's it's still right. classified as endemic. Yes. I think the key difference between the United States in China or other countries where rabies is under control or, or you know, rabies-free right. country is that here we grow up with with the lessons that you should stay away from dogs because right. if the dog bites you, you could get rabies and you will die. You know, rabies yes. is uniformly fatal, 100% fatal. So we still have these lessons being taught to children by their, by their parents and grandparents. And even, you know, living in Beijing, a major city, very cosmopolitan, well-educated, urban, right. you know, urban residents, I still walk around, you know, my neighborhood, and I, I will hear nannies and grandparents tell small children, don't touch that dog. You yes. touch that dog and he bites you. You get rabies. You die. And this is a lifelong lesson that will not be forgotten by these children. That's and a great point. It's, dogs. it's the boogeyman, if you will. And you're taught these <laughs> things as a child, and you're scared of the dark because the boogeyman could jump out of the closet or behind the drapes, and that's what dogs are. And it's very interesting that in a society where ideas are changing about pets, that some of the older thinking or the more like, oh, gee, don't be so silly, most dogs are friendly, it doesn't apply because the facts are that you have a huge population of people and a huge population of dogs that are not vaccinated against rabies. In America, everyone, you know, if you will, was frothing at the mouth and some people still are. You know, that rabies vaccination shouldn't be every year and they did change it. They changed the formulation so it lasted a minimum of three years. And then there's a, a few scientists and a lot of kind of natural thinking people all mad. It should be only every five years or every seven. It doesn't need to be every three years. We haven't lived, Mary, with this fear, with this scourge. And how do you know which dog that vaccine may not last beyond the three years. It's just such a huge risk. And we in America can look down our nose, if you will, at a country like China and go, oh, that's so ignorant. I can't believe they just gathered up all these dogs and killed them. How ridiculous. But it's not. It's a very, I think, appropriate response to a very true threat. Right. You're absolutely right, Tracy. Here's something else I want to share, which is not well known either. You know, in the United States, if you're bitten by a dog or a cat or some, you know, mammal animal right, that, right. That, that can transmit rabies, um, it's really not that great a deal because all of our pets are just, you know, nearly all of our pets yes. have been rabies vaccinated. Right. right. 
So because we have such successful animal vaccination programs to control rabies and basically prevent the spillover from the yes. companion animal population into the human population, when you get bitten by a dog, it's not that big of a deal. You know, you should clean the wounds, see the right. doctor. And in, fact, and in fact, what people yeah. say is the dog who bit you should be kept at home for 10 days. That's what they say. That's, That's what right. animal control says. The dog should sort of be quarantined at home for 10 days. But they know the dogs have all been vaccinated. There's a, you know, a history of that because you can't get a license without a vaccination. Of course, many people don't actually license their dogs, but they do get the rabies vaccination. It's the That's one right. thing that they still will do, even people that are, you know, concerned about over vaccinating. So that's right. It's not considered. It's a big deal because what if the dog hurts you and then you think, well, this dog's a danger to society. And what if it bites a kid in the face? And you think of it for different reasons, not that you might die. That's right. But here in China, the Ministry of Health and all of the public health officials and, and, and doctors, all of the medical care professionals will recommend that if you were bitten or exposed to any animal, you should go and get post-exposure rabies vaccination. Yes. And this is regardless of whether or not, you know, the, the, the owner of the animal that did the biting or did the, did, you know, right. did the damage can prove that their animal was rabies vaccinated. Why is that? Because we can't take a risk. They don't want to put anyone at risk. You know, what, it, what if the owner thought they had rabies vaccinated the animal that year and, and they just forgot? You know, this is very easy. They just forgot. They didn't go to the vet that year. Yep. Or maybe they took it to some place and they were using... Lousy um, vaccine no, that was expired. Exactly. Or not properly exactly. handled. I mean, I had a puppy once who had distemper. He came from a very good breeder. Whatever they... That distemper vaccination didn't work. You know, I mean, it just happens. Either the immune system of the dog or the actual vaccine is ineffectual. Same thing in America. If you have an exposure, they want you to get those shots. That used to be 14 shots in your stomach. Now it's like three or something in your arm, right? That's right. But in any case, so, I think the important thing we want to get across is the idea that 5,000 dogs were, I guess, rounded up. Was it like the previous time, whatever, however many years ago it was? Did they round them up? Did people come in trucks with dog nooses and round them up? How is it done? Yeah, they, they do. Um, uh, some eyewitness reports that I've received accounts of is that they, the officials will go into the villages. They will go and round up all the dogs. Um, it's very unfortunate, but they do. There are trucks involved. There are ra you know rabies poles yes. so that they can uh, obtain the dogs. Um, and, and basically, they, they do exterminate the dogs. It's very sad. And every time something like this happens, there's a huge backlash in Chinese society. Yes. And then, you know, and then, and then what happens is that you have this tremendous outpour of outrage from the Chinese citizenry. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then they start to look at other methods of handling this because it creates such a big, you know, PR crisis yes. for the public, for the public officials in the local area. And then to be very honest, the Chinese central government knows that every time something like this happens, it's, it's you know, very bad for China's image in the international That's right. arena. So they don't like it either. But this is a very large country. It's very, uh, you know, decentralized once you get to local decisions right. at, at the very, you know, local, you know, district, county, township levels. So it's very difficult to, you know, be able to, you know, manage such a huge nation. 
So this is one of the challenges that we face. And I guess the main point that we'd really like to share with, with our listeners is that, you know, we don't approve of this either. The right. Chinese citizens don't like it either. Nobody condones this. But we have got to find better solutions. The first thing to do is to raise awareness so that you've got to vaccinate your dogs every year in China. Now, this is by law. Every dog, every year is required to have a rabies vaccination by law. But it's simply not, not complied with. And enforcement is not very good because it's difficult to get out to all these little That's villages. Right. And, then you, and then you have to have a number of humans that could somehow round up these dogs, which are loosely owned and therefore loosely trust people. So a bunch of guys or gals show up wearing uniforms and having poles just to grab them to vaccinate them. I think those dogs would take a bit of a hike. I mean, in America, it used to be the yearly rabies vaccination, and then we changed our vaccines, as I think we have other vaccines as well, even for humans. But that's because it's after many years of practice and, and the evolution of the process. Were there a lot of dogs then suddenly vaccinated? Was there a good, was there, was there some positive outcome of this outbreak? Was there some solution to the problem? Yes, after, uh, after these uh, incidences arise and after they pass, what happens is that they start looking at more preventive programs. So they really start to focus on preventative care and going through the, the, these towns and villages to uh, provide more education. And then what they'll do in future is that they'll send the public health officials or they'll send the animal health officials into these villages and they'll have free vaccination days. It won't cost the villagers anything. That's right. what we're looking for. I mean, that yeah. would be the solution. Right. But here's another challenge. Even on these free vaccination days, a lot of people still don't show up. They don't bring their dogs. And that's because the education about what is rabies and how to prevent it and, you know, its, it's fatality is not well communicated. It's not well taught, uh, you know, through, through our public health programs. It's, you know, we still need to do a better job of really teaching the science of prevention in our schools. And China, because we don't have these programs to really target the animals, companion animals, right, we place the emphasis on post-exposure right. vaccinations for humans. So, so in the rest of the world, you know, the primary focus is on vaccinating right. the animal. Right. That's where the money is spent. That's where the public health campaigns are spent. And you work very closely with animal health care officials to make this happen. Here in China, we haven't really gotten to that level yet. So what, what, what the country can do is really place the emphasis on people that have been exposed. So it's after the fact. So we spend, you know, we, we, we are the biggest consumers of human rabies vaccines worldwide. The PRC buys more rabies vaccines and consumes more rabies for, for its population than any other country in the world. But we still have the second highest rate of rabies in the world. Because you're not so, going to the source of the problem. You, they're, they're, you're, you're closing the barn door after the horse is out. And the, the, the trick would be to get all those vaccines and make them every three years instead of every year if, it, if they could, because then there'd be much less trips to the villages and compliance would only have to be every three years instead of every year. But of course, if the dogs are loosely owned, it's not like they have a collar and a leash and they also go to obedience school and they like to do agility competition. I mean, these are village dogs. They roam. It's not like when the officials come that that family that's theoretically the owner of that dog has 
ever actually restrained that dog. They've probably never taken it to have its toenails clipped or anything. You know, I mean, it's just such a different way of looking at ownership and, it, and at the way dogs live in human society, much, I'm sure, as it was in the U.S., you know, many dec decades ago. I think it really is a look back at how things have evolved for us and for you guys to look forward because I'm sure we were exactly in this position at many times in, in our history. We must have been because in the end, all the world is, is you know, just one community. It's just, it just acts, it's, acts out at, at different times, right? You are absolutely right, Tracy. And, you know, your insights are just really fabulous to hear because this is what we need to do is to put – you know, what we're seeing today in historical perspective, I don't think there are any countries that really had a different path. You know, we That's work right. with a lot of, lot of public health officials, animal health officials, and I talk to lots of people from around the world, from South America, from Eastern Europe, from Africa. That's you know, right. And we, all, we, we talk a lot about the common challenges that we face in these very large emerging markets where you don't have the infrastructure you know, to get out to a lot of these remote places and villages where where animals are loosely owned. They're not they're not in the and, house. And as you say, not, that really collared or yes. And that's more in more countries that's the case in more countries than in our countries where, you know, we worry about what color our dog's leash is and it's really not what's going on in most of the world. Mary, we've run out of time, but it's so wonderful to talk to you. The International Center for Vet Services is such a, a great gift to, to the People's Republic of China, as are you to the people and their pets who, who care so much and want to do the right thing and, and evolve in the right direction. Thank you so much. And everybody should listen to Tales from China because Mary and I have a great time on the show as well. Thanks, Mary. Thank you, Tracy. I'll be right back after this quick word. This show is supported by Vectra and Vectra 3D, the safe and effective parasite treatments you put on your pet's skin every month to create an invisible shield that repels and kills parasites on contact. Parasites that are a health hazard to all members of your family. Vectra is the anti-flea topical treatment that kills all three life cycles of the flea. Vectra 3D is the anti-tick protection, only for dogs, not intended for cats, but after the two-hour drying period, they can be around a dog who's been treated. Vectra is waterproof and safe for dogs, cats, and for the people in your family, too, with protection proven to last a full 30 days. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality pure omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils, which our bodies cannot produce but need on a daily basis. Omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, are natural anti-inflammatories used by the body for skin, bone, and joint health and for brain function. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness to provide their oils to people and their pets for optimal health on a cellular level. I am back with Laura Ann Kornetsky and her new book, Doghouse. You've heard about her on the show from Collard when she talked about her first gin and tonic mystery, which does take place in a bar, but the gin and tonic actually refers to people, not the drink necessarily. And then her next one was fixed. And my husband tells me that Laura Ann is like one of the hottest sellers on Kindle ever. So that's pretty thrilling. Laura Ann, <laughs> welcome back to the show with Doghouse, which is such a wonderful mystery. Did you know that you're like the hottest thing since sliced bread in the Kindle world? 
I did not know that. I am very. That makes a Monday much better to hear that. Isn't that great? <laughs> Isn't that wild? I mean, of course, authors never know anything because, I mean, how much of a slice of the pie does an author get? Probably not quite enough. But it's nice to know that you're well-loved. What's well-loved are these fabulous characters, the dog and cat characters in the mysteries. I imagine that's part of the reason that people keep coming back for more because how many books have a dog and a cat that actually have feelings and dialogue and thoughts and action and they're integral to the plot? You have kitties of your own, right? Mm-hmm. But you, yes. have, you have a timeshare dog? What is a timeshare <laughs> dog? A timeshare dog is, uh, Machon actually belongs to my parents. She's my dad's therapy dog. Oh, nice. Um, but uh, because my parents are older, when they acquired her, I it was always understood that if there came a time when they couldn't take care of her, that I would take care of her. So she's always thought of me as being her third human. Oh, that's so cool. And by the way, what a great reminder to people to do that, please. It's really fine for people of any age to adopt, shop, buy. I don't really care how you get a pet as long as it's responsible. But you do have to think about the what if, the what if dot, dot, dot. So that's very nice of you to be the safety net for, uh, I guess, your sister, right? Technically. My, well, little sister. Mechan actually means, I believe, directly translated, little sister. May, may, oh, how funny. And what so kind of dog is joke, she? Yeah. Is she an she, Asian-style dog? She's a Shih Tzu, yes. She is. Well, she she obviously didn't... I mean, Asian dogs interest you. A Sharpay is a, is a very Asian dog who is a, mm-hmm. a major... A major figure, it was actually on the cover of two of your books, the, and the third, really, but the kitty seems to be more prominent in Doghouse. When you set out to write another mystery and keep this dog and cat and the bartender and the bar scene, really, as part of it, was it very easy for you to think of a dog fighting ring and dog fighting and dog napping? Was that, like, one of the first things that came to you, or did you have to really dig around? I don't know that it was easy for me. It's Originally, the idea for the mystery was, okay, you have somebody who's being unfairly evicted, um, an older man who doesn't have any defense, and that was where the story started. And then I started thinking, well, what would get him in trouble? And it all came from there because he was a former boxer, and there was the culture of acceptable violence within that. And not only that, so but there were there were illegal. I mean, at one point there was some talk of some illegal boxing matches between humans, mm-hmm. right? Where there was betting, which is yeah. kind of like the human equivalent of dog fighting. Which until I read that, I thought, you know, I had never thought of that. You pit two men against each other, right? And you illegally uh, bet on it. Isn't that sort of like dog fighting, except for the dogs aren't very consensual, to put it mildly? Well, that. That was much of the point of the book is that if, if two people decide to beat each other up for money, that's their decision, um, hopefully, of their, own, of their own volition. Animals don't have that, so they have to be protected, and that's where the story sort of um, deepens. Yes, which is a really wonderful, uh, a wonderful realization for someone as a reader, which is we do a lot of things that are violent, and we kind of are drawn to violence, or maybe we have an appetite for it. And I love that that your books all have morals in them. I mean, there's a good morality in them. There's a good sense of right and wrong and moral indignation. Sometimes the animals have the moral indignation, right? But <laughs> but in this case, they're they're also very involved in in kind of bringing down the bad guys. Dog napping. When you ha- when these ideas came to you, they obviously came to you in layers, which is kind of cool. You start with one thing, and then you think, well, how could that have happened? And then what might happen next? 
the dog napping aspect of it and the shelters and 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 even research places and and avenues through which dogs could wind up in the dog fighting world did that did that was that something that you created invented thought well i should maybe that would work and then had to do a lot of research how did you come to it's very factual and very truth it sounds very much true what you have in the book uh, everything that i mentioned there uh, was researched um i live in new york city and one of the things you have to be aware of is a lot of people leave their dogs tied up when they go into yes. the store just running errands yes and dogs disappear and there are a number of reasons why the dogs disappear uh, but you'll see ads in your local vet saying this dog disappeared or this cat disappeared so I said, well, why? why do, and I started talking to people at shelters. I talked to my vet. And the answer came back is sometimes they're stolen for pets. Sometimes they're stolen for less humane reasons. Wow. Um, it, it's a problem. So uh, that's, was, really, yeah. that's really kind of a scary thought. There's some piece of equipment I've seen sold online or by pet manufacturers, which is some sort of a lockup device where if you wanted to lock your dog up when you went to get your Starbucks, Presumably, like locking up your very expensive titanium bike, nobody could break it. It's a little dopey, though. I mean, because they could still unhook it, I would think, at the collar end, right? Yeah, it's it's tough. The, 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 the main answer is don't do it. Have somebody to watch your dog. There's a, uh, a bodega, a grocery store near me. They sell flowers outside. And if you want to go into the store, the guy who's selling the flowers will hold your dog for nice. you. Nice, nice. So that's um, someone you know, and you know he's like not going to run away with the dog. So you yeah. actually learned as an investigative reporter kind of person that that does happen and that the end use of those stolen dogs might very well be for dog fighting as bait dogs, right? It is one of the possible uses uh, for stolen dogs, yeah, or even just, you know, uh, puppy mills, that sort of thing. It's, it's a real risk. Um, I don't know the actual percentage uh, it happens to, but even 1% is too much. Yeah, it would be very, very distressing, to put it mildly. Well, I think it's really great how you've taken very um, current event kind of topics like dog fighting and then even the issue of dog napping, many issues like that, and woven them into what's a really great mystery because it starts with this this gentleman being kicked out of his apartment, and it seems unfair, but is it really unfair? It would be great if... If you would just, I'd love you to read from the early in the book. It's just a description of the bar and the dog and the cat who are such main characters. I think it just sort of sets the scene. The book is clearly a mystery, and what carries one along is the story. Like any good mystery, you keep wanting to find out more. But I'd love it if you would set the scene for our, our four-legged characters. Sure, no problem. This is, um, as you said, very early on in the book, um, when Ginny, who is Georgie, the dog's owner, um, Ginny and Georgie come into the bar and uh, meeting up with everyone else. And uh, Teddy, who is the bartender, is the point of view character in this. One gimlet, just like the lady likes, he said, pulling up the ingredients, even as Ginny slid up to the bar. As crowded as, it, as, crowded as it had been, a stool suddenly opened for her, and she took it like a queen accepting her throne. One of these days, the blonde said, I'm going to come in here and order a beer just to mess with you. No, you won't. Ginny laughed. No, I probably won't, but I might. She might, he thought, especially if she thought she could catch him out. Ginny Mallard had a streak of mischief a mile wide for all that she looked like butter wouldn't melt in her mouth just then. Either she'd had a good day at the office, or he was about to get hit with the worst joke he'd ever heard, or possibly both. And hello to you too, Mistress Penny, she said to the cat. 
who gave her a delicate sniff and then leaped down to the floor to visit with a newcomer she was actually interested in, Ginny Sharpay Georgie, who was happily settling at her mistress's feet. Until recently, Georgie, like all the other canines whose owners frequented Mary's, the bar, had been relegated to the sidewalk outside. There was an unofficial tie-up next to the bike rack where dogs could rest in the shade out of the way of foot traffic. Since Teddy had become manager, those rules had been loosened until Georgie now took it as much her right to come inside as it was Ginny's. One cat and one dog. That was as far as Teddy had let himself slip. So what's really good about that is that you set up the whole idea of tying up your animal outside. Well, a bar, you're going to stay a lot longer than a Starbucks, right? <laughs> but you set yeah. up the idea that that's pretty common. Um, when you when you learned about it from asking around, this idea of dog napping and then winding up in a dog fighting ring, did anyone tell you, did you be, personally talk to someone who came out and their dog was gone? No, I'm not sure I could have handled that. that Me kind either. Of, of, yeah. yeah. Um, I talked with uh, the staff who worked my who work at my vet because they're the ones who you know the the, the signs come in and, and they get the announcements of of missing animals and they have an entire board of pets that have gone missing. Wow! And they said some of them just just get out, some of them escape, some of them just disappear. Um, we actually it was wonderful though. Well, one time I was there, one of the cats, a woman came in and she took down the sign and she kind of waved it and said, "He came home. Somebody brought him home." Oh, isn't that nice? And the the the, vet, the staff said, "Yeah, that they so rarely get to hear those stories. That's they took right. it as a personal triumph." And they should because lost pets is a really big issue. I mean, people get lost totally accidentally, right? I mean, it's it's not that that they were being really sloppy about their dogs and cats. Sometimes the cats sneak out and and dogs can slip their collar even. You hear stories of oh, wonderful purebred dogs found wandering highways and streets, but they're well cared for. They've just escaped and now they have no identification. Cats especially are great escape artists. They're like, yes. oh look, something interesting out there. There's a bird out there. And then they get outside and they're like, oh crap, how do I get home? Yeah, no clue. Absolutely no clue which way is home. When, when you, so I love the, to hear about the process of how you start with the germ of an idea and then it, it evolves, it grows itself. Do you plan it all on cards, so to speak, or in the computer on cards ahead of time? Or as you write, do things just pop up? Does the muse send you new information and new ideas? It's a little bit of both. Everything for me has to be planned out ahead of time as in, okay, this is the setup, and this is where things are going to go, and this is what they're going to discover, and this is how it's going to end. So I have what I call the skeleton. I have right. the bones to hang right. the story on. As I'm actually writing, a lot of times something I thought would work, something else works better, and I have to adapt on the fly, or a piece of information that I didn't know that I knew. Oh, cool. And I go, oh, okay, um, that's how that's going to work. Nice. Or sometimes I do a little more research, and I say, oh, that's not going to work. Okay, let's make it that way instead. So you have to be very adaptive. You have to be willing um, to let go of something that you thought was a gem. Yes. Oh, very much so. And it has to make be what makes sense for the story as a whole rather than what you thought you were going to say. Now, and usually it turns out better than you thought it would. Which is kind of a great feeling. Now, you have other writing that you do under a, a different surname, right? Yes. You write fantasy yes. fiction. So w w did you, were you uh, somewhat daunted by the idea of writing a mystery because there's such discipline to the story and to the plot? And so many great mystery writers have, you know, preceded anyone trying it. D was that a help or a hindrance to realize that you had quite a challenge? 
Well, anytime you sit down to write something and say, I'm going to write a book that people are going to love, you've got to have, you yes. know, at least a healthy ego. Um, because there are so many people in all the genres who have, who've written these amazing books before you, you have You're to believe right. in yourself and say, I, I know my voice. I know I've got something to say. Right. But in a lot of ways, a lot of the fantasy that I've been writing previously had a mystery backbone. Also, ah. uh, the first series was paper novels. Then I wrote sort of P, uh, CSI with magic. So I've been a mystery reader my entire life. I so see. no, it, it, it wasn't so much an, you know, how, how dare I do this as, okay, let's see if I can do this. And you loved it. You obviously loved it because the joy in doing it and in creating the human characters and the dog and cat characters, there's clearly a lot of juice to it. It's like very juicy apple. You bite it and it's just like very juicy and you're like, yes, it just seems to really, you know, have a, a lot of life to it. Is there another one cooking inside the, the mental oven? Actually, just this morning, I hit send on the fourth gin and tonic novel, Claude. Oh, my goodness. Claude. I um, love the titles. They're great. Thank you. Um, although, I actually have to give my editor credit for that one. She came up with it. And that one is set both in Seattle and in Portland. So, our team gets sort of split up for a little bit of the book, and they have to take on each other's strengths, which is a new challenge for them. Not, and for you, right? I mean, isn't it great that oh, you can yeah. keep finding new ways to uh, to keep all the balls in the air? Well, Laura Ann, it's a wonderful, a wonderful mystery, great fun reading, and what what a great accomplishment that you're you're just so prolific and and there's so much attention to detail. You clearly just go right down to the bone, not to make too much of a of a dog <laughs> pun. Doghouse is swell, and I wish you all the best with it. And I hope the Kindles fly off the shelf, although it's a virtual shelf, of course. Have a oh, great you. rest of the day. Bye-bye. This show is supported by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who has created many different low-dust litters for the health of all members of the family. For the special needs of every cat, from kittens to old kitties, and long-haired and those with out-of-litter box problems who can get back in the box with Cat Attract Litter. Precious Cat's new litter, Touch of the Outdoors, is made with field grasses grown in their own fields, bringing the natural scent of the outdoors to provide environmental enrichment for indoor cats. This show is also brought to you by Vivimmune Chews, a natural supplement using Oxy-C Beta, a new active ingredient based on oxidized beta-carotene found in foods like red and orange vegetables. Vivimmune is a chewable that has been scientifically proven to support immune function in dogs and cats with the main benefits to joints, skin, and digestion, usually seen within a month. Modern life creates many stressors on a pet's immune system, which is further challenged as they age, and Vivimmune can help pets lead the healthiest possible life. I am back with Dr. Nick Dodman, who's been on the show a number of times with his marvelous books and also to discuss the extraordinary work he does as a veterinary behaviorist. But now, as, and, and is really the whole behavior department of Tufts University Veterinary School, where he's a professor, but now as if he weren't busy enough, as if he didn't have enough on his plate, Dr. Nick has become the, the man behind the Center for Canine Behavior Studies. Dr. Dodman, wonderful to have you back again. Thank you for making a sliver of time for us in your crazy busy schedule. Well, thank you for having me on again, Tracy. I appreciate it. Well, what I appreciate is your lifetime of dedication to the happiness of dogs and cats, the ones who are unhappy, just to use a kind of a mild phrase. But now you're, you're getting involved in this foundation called the Center for Canine Behavior Studies, which wants to look at why people relinquish their dogs. Why do people give up their dogs? And 
uh, the written description is, uh, the behavioral factors linking dogs and their owners' adopters in order to identify specifically the factors of behavioral compatibility and the most influ- that most influence dog relinquishment. Now, you're obviously an animal behaviorist. Do you believe that it is animal behavior that makes people relinquish their pets, or is it human behavior? Um, well, it's a combination of the two because, you know, every pet and every owner is what, what's called a dyad, like it takes two to tangle. Yes. Tango. Yes. Um, and whether you realize it or whether you don't, your own behavior and attitude and affect and emotional reactivity will impact on your pet. I mean, they can read you like you're um, like they're reading a book. Yes. They can practically see you sweat. And, you know, if you're uptight, the, the saying goes, they'll be uptight too. Yes. And we've sort of almost shown that in a couple of earlier studies. And, you know, we know that people's behavior affects owner-directed aggression and we know that people's anxiety can affect fear aggression and certain types of people might not, because of you know factors about their own lives, be able to provide optimal environment. What is it about these people? And you know, We don't expect people to change their personalities, but if we, the more we learn about that interaction of the dog in this particular study and the person, um, the more we think we'll be able to share with people so that Maybe they won't change their personality, but they might change the way they interact with the dog for the better. Therefore, we hope preventing, you know, excessive, unnecessary relinquishment. And do you think that relinquishment happens? I think nobody knows for sure. So I'm just asking you this off the cuff. It's not as if you know this as a veterinarian or or as a researcher. But do you think that the reason that people give up dogs to shelters is because something has gone really wrong between them or more what I think, which is, I guess one could call it judgmental, but no one's ever accused me of not being judgmental, that the people simply didn't stop to think how much time and energy and effort and love and money goes into living with and properly caring for a dog. And that it's just basically beyond what they anticipated, which might have been just something a lot lower less demanding? Well, I think some of them will, will undoubtedly be surrounded for that reason. They just didn't plan properly. And, you know, sometimes it's the, you know, the Christmas pup syndrome yes. where yes. someone's given one and it's kind of cute at the time, but really they hadn't thought it out properly. But, you know, even so, um, behavior from a pet, the right kind of behavior can be very endearing. Correct. A person who can be entrained into actually, you know, doting for that pet. Yes. Um, sort of happened to me last year. As oh, what happened? Tell in. me, tell me. Uh, there was a, a dog who was in a tough situation in Boston with a person who didn't have time for it because they were working a full-time job, actually looking after um, children who had developmental uh, problems. And what with that and a boyfriend and whatever and life, this poor yes. dog was stuck in a crate for over 20 hours a day. Oh, Nick. And I knew that there was this problem was ongoing, and I was thinking, boy, you know, I, she's a friend of a friend. I, I don't know how am I going to deal with this. And luckily, um, fate intervened, and the dog um, happened to get into some Tampax and ate them because he was basically starving, uh, and he had this depraved appetite. He got an intestinal obstruction, which he couldn't afford to fix. So my wife and I, both veterinarians, volunteered to do the operation because she was going to put him down on the condition that we placed him in a home where he would have a better life. 
so he came to live with us, and it was really meant to be a halfway house. Yes, not anymore. But he, but he grew into us, and we grew into him, and him and my other dog, Rusty, we, they get on so well that now we're oh. a happy family. And we never did find the right home for him. No, no home was as good as ours. And he weighed, when he came to see us, 45 pounds. He's now actually the correct weight of about 78. Oh, he was really starving, Nick. What if sort of dog is he? We don't know. He he could be, um, he looks a lot like a blue tick coonhound without the ticking. Yes, yes. He's clearly mixed. I mean, his, his uh, hair is so long and silky. We were wondering at one time if he wasn't, didn't have some Saluki in him too, because the nickname for Salukis is Daddy Longlegs. Oh, how funny. And he looks I like a Daddy that. Longlegs. He's got these big, long, spidery legs. <laughs> he runs all sort of gangly. But what a wonderful story. And now a dog He's like got that. The life of Riley. And he had to suffer he, so much to find his way into the Dodman house. Well, he was a very um, patient sufferer. I mean, yes. but actually he was in a crate that was so small, it was his puppy crate, and he's got these long legs, so his back was rubbing on the top of the crate. Oh, no. He's got a scar on his back. The hair's over it. It sort of grows over it like a toupee, but if you flip the hair up, there's this scar. Wow. Which one day, and if we have to put him under anesthesia or something, we might fix the scar, but we worried about it being a spot where he might get cold in the winter, but either way, he's, he's happy as a clam. He gets an hour of running around in the woods in the morning, an hour of running around oh in the my. evening. He's got his buddy Rusty to look wow. after. He's got people around nearly all the time. And he's never in a crate, ever. Nor and should any dog be. Would, is this a chance to say that to people? I mean, you're the behaviorist. You're the veterinary behaviorist. You know so much, but I have heard so often of people completely misunderstanding the use of a crate for puppy training, for house soiling, and think that once your puppy has bladder and bowel control and you've been responsible in teaching them how to wait until they go outside, they still think the crate is somehow a house that the dog should be locked in. I feel strongly that you need to bring your dog into your home, and if you're not home, your dog has to learn a way to be outside the crate, right? Well, I don't mind crates for adult dogs, but I don't think they need to have the door shut ever oh right I mean, to have it open as a den yes if they want a den you put a nice sure. light in there put some sure. treats a lot of dogs if you don't provide some kind of recluse place for them they will um go under a furniture yes. you know, hide under a table yes when things are noisy they're not sometimes they want to get away it's like that's a great point a teenager needs a room yes so a that's a great point a little cave Yes, but it needs to be not with a door that's locked against them and obviously plenty large enough to stand up and turn around, even if all you're going to do in the end is lie down. That's a, that's a very touching story because that dog would have wound up, I mean, maybe the person, instead of torturing them by keeping them and starving them in the crate, would have just given them to a shelter and said, I can't do this anymore. And who knows, he was skinny and didn't look right, and maybe he wouldn't have found a way into a home in time before they had to put him to sleep. Yeah, he also didn't really get many bathroom breaks, and sometimes he would be many hours in that crate before he got out. So when I first got him, if I opened my slider out into the back, he would take one pace, squat and pee, because he never knew. He think, this is it. Oh. I might be going back again in 30 seconds. Oh, boy. But now he's so confident. He runs around in the backyard, and he goes off in the woods, and you know, there's no, no need to go immediately. He knows he's got time. But I guess, you know, in a funny way, that scar is a reminder to you, as it is to anyone who's adopted or found a dog that had a really miserable time before. It just shows you their capacity for joy and forgiveness and to start fresh. And I'm sure you see this all the time. You get those dogs 
that are, you know, menacing or menaced. And you help people to understand how to help them find their inner dogness and feel okay about the world and themselves again. That's right. And in fact, you know, adoption is a wonderful thing. Both mine are adopted. So the other one came from a shelter. And um, I think he was tended in for being the number one cause of surrender is um, behavior that people find intolerable, incompatible, or whatever. This particular dog, I'm pretty sure, I don't know for sure, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty certain from his behavior that he was turned in because he had separation anxiety. I can also read between the lines that his owner, other than, you know, having a sort of a hard line for misbehavior and punishing him, was otherwise a very kind person. He just didn't, you know, he was a spare the rod and spoil the dog type person. Yes. And so if I, if I, if I left him initially, he would empty the trash can. And if I replaced, you know, put the trash back in and took it out, put a new liner in, if I shook the liner, he would quake with fear. If I took off a tire or a belt, he would quake with fear. Oh, I don't like that. And so I knew that he'd been spanked and because now he never is, so he's got all his confidence back and his separation anxiety has gone. And he's a terrific dog, Rusty. He's, uh, he's the world's best dog, I think, but that's... But that's probably of course, you're a, you're a little biased, but you know what's really great is, I think, knowing what the deficit was and the, and the sense of satisfaction and pride that it doesn't take that much for us to bring a dog back from the brink of these sort of emotional states to being companions that we can't imagine being without. I, I've said before that many of us that have adopted or rescued dogs in no time at all say, how could anybody have wanted to give this dog up? This dog is a 10. This dog is aces. This dog is so wonderful. And to somebody else, that dog was a problem, a nightmare. They didn't yeah. know what to do. So in this Center for Canine Behavior Studies, is some of the studying going to be how those people must be very complicated to figure out how to do questionnaires and how to, uh, you know, evaluate both the dogs and the people. But will it have to do well, with those people's attitudes about training and, and positive versus abusive, uh, positive reinforcement versus abusive responses to behavior? Well, um, we're using validated questionnaires, so we didn't invent them. Um, and that's why I'm working with uh, Dr. James Serpell, who's... Um, you know, PhD yes. um, in the uh, University of Pennsylvania, and he's written like my, I have a couple of papers. I think he's a better than mine, tell you the truth. About <laughs> You're too humble as always. The interaction of people and pets, and we both, you know, come with up with certain conclusions. But this is going to be the largest, the biggest. I think I think we've got 1,600 people enrolled. Um, you know, 1,600 already. It's just cool. Uh, with about 2,400 dogs. Wow. But it's it's called. Um, Center for Canine Behavior Studies, all one word, Center for, F-O-R, Canine Behavior Studies, dot O-R-G. And I'll, ha I'll have a link to it with the podcast of the show so people or can find um, it. Or there's a Facebook page, Center for Canine Behavior Studies. People can read about the study. But the thing is, Dr. Serpel is the kind of conceiver, inventor, tester of a thing called CBARQ, C-B-A-R-Q. It's called the Canine behavior and research questionnaire. It's a validated questionnaire for evaluating dog behavior. And he started with a longer version, it was 100 questions, but he's now got it down to 42 questions about your dog, which will tell you um, against a 7,000 strong database whether your dog is 
um, away from the norm for, for example, owner-directed behavior, separation-related behavior, noise phobia, and so on. Wow. You, and actually, you, you can fill this thing in anyway, despite the study. You can get one or two flags, red flags, if there's a problem in an area. It's been validated as a research tool for looking at canine behavior. So that's going to be the study on the dog. For people, there's a psychologist down at uh, somewhere down south, I think in Tennessee, Sam, Dr. Sam Gosling, and he, he invented a questionnaire for people. It's called the PIPI, the 10-item personality inventory, which oh, has been validated. Interesting. So 10 questions, and you can be pegged in a rough uh, sort of personality type. So the PIPI is the, the personality inventory, but also psychologists at Tufts, in particular Dr. Heather Uri, who's a, um, a human um, expert in emotional reactivity, said that and advised us and, and directed us to use a thing called ERQ, which is the Human Emotional Reactivity Questionnaire. Again, 10 questions that will tell you, you know, how good you are at basically regulating your emotions, whether you're able to. Well, we don't know how it's going to work out. That's why it's a study. You know, the right, research. Of course. If you knew what the results were, it wouldn't be research. But it could be, for example, that a person who is able to bottle up their feelings um, might be a better or worse dog owner. Who knows? That's or right. Or a person who That's wears right. their heart on their sleeve. But we're also doing a, another funny thing. I, Dr. Serpo wanted to add a thing called the Beck Depression Inventory. And maybe, you know, one's mood uh, affect can affect behavior. But I tell you, the, the BDI, or Beck Depression Inventory, another uh, just a few handful of questions, to actually answer that, if you answered it with lots of checks down the right-hand side, you could get depressed yourself. <laughs> just thinking about it? Oh, my God. Yeah. So, in fact, when we run it by the university committees for, you know, we have to do that as academics to make sure that we're, doing everything we have to when people are involved in a study. Um, they insisted that we put uh, suicide hotlines after the Beck depression no, come in the case somebody did the fill in the questionnaire. Seriously? And so, yeah. Wow. So we had, you know, that was a condition from the Human Research Committee, uh, Institutional Review Board. Nick, this is tremendous. Anyone who wants to participate, whether it's to give a donation to learn how to participate, they go to Center for Canine Behavior Studies .org. And there'll also be a link to it, along with the podcast, to this interview. Nick, your work is always marvelous. Can't wait for your new book next year in 2015. And, of course, any news that comes out of this study, we want you to, we, we would like to be the, the fly on the wall. So let us know things as it evolves. We, we don't want to wait for the final results. We want to know how the process works, okay? We'll be doing interim analyses, so there'll be ongoing news. Fantastic. We wish you all the best with it, and always so have so much admiration for everything you do, personally and professionally. Go home and love up those two doggies, okay? Okay, Tracy. Have a great Thank rest of the much. day, I will Nick. Do. You take care. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Have a great rest of a weekend, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now. Bye.